Eric Lorber is the editor of Rain Taxi Review of Books, based in Minneapolis. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. We're eating a delicious tuna salad here at Zello's, one of the most lauded restaurants in your fair town. Indeed, yeah. It may interfere with the audio here a bit, but I'd just like to talk about how you've been able to succeed in the field and your thoughts on the battle that the book reviews sections are fighting and losing in the newspapers and the growth of reviews online and that that whole dynamic. Well, it's a big question. We've been around for 13 years and we began because we felt that potentially that the collision of corporate publishing, corporate book selling, and the effect that that was having on news coverage. You mean tying advertising to positive reviewing? Or corporate synergy, you know, the same publications owned by the same companies that have a division that public, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We essentially just felt this was unhealthy and, and that there could be an alternative uh, to that. And so we began as non-profit uh, book review and funded by foundations and donors and people who believe in our mission to shed some light on the environment from a different perspective. Unbiased uh yeah, although I think it's it's less about, I mean, you know, there's probably no real objectivity anywhere, but I think in, in our case, you know, we're known for our coverage of the small press especially because uh, they need a voice. They have no power in this industry. And yet, excellent, thank you. Yeah. And yet, uh, you know, historically, uh, they're responsible for most of the great literature <laughs> that is published, you know, so... Uh, Are they, though? I mean, uh, perhaps 50, 100 years ago, but but these days, are they? Uh, I think so, although, I mean, uh, I think there's a fluidity. I think many writers uh, uh, begin in the small press, graduate mm. to the large press, and, yeah. and that's good. That's healthy. That's the, that's the ecosystem we want, you know. And we certainly have nothing against the larger presses either. It's just that we don't want one coverage at the expense of another. So, yeah, we've, you know, in trying to, you know, craft a publication that paid attention to the marginal uh, writers and publishers and and so forth, while at the same time uh, acknowledging uh, the artistic vitality. I mean, one example I can give you is that uh, we have given serious review coverage to graphic novels since our inception. You know, happily, the rest of the world has caught up and realized, you know, this is a very intriguing, uh, artistically viable form of storytelling, mm-hmm. you know. It's just a coincidence that Neil Gaiman lives quite close by, I guess. It, yeah, it yeah. is a coincidence, a happy coincidence, but... Um, yeah. And as you can see in our new issue, we have a feature on the 20th anniversary of his Sandman comics, and very happily, a, a, an original cover by the Sandman cover artist, Dave McKean. But the, so, but the thing is, you know, along with the erosion of, of book review sections and of a value of that discourse, I mean, I think a, a civilized society should talk about ideas, and books are one of the main ways ideas get communicated. So mm-hmm. to me, it seems like a, a crime to see book review sections and newspapers being eroded. They should be, they should be a, a flagship part of any kind of you know, social discourse, but... It's kind of odd. It's also, in a way, short-sighted. This is exactly who you want to read your newspapers. You want people who are curious and who are uh, intrigued by uh, interesting new ideas, and yet they seem to be shutting down uh, one of the more interesting parts of their newspapers. But, of course, it comes from an economic standpoint. Then again, the sports sections don't support themselves, do they? No, you're right. My only guess there is that... Hmm. I think, oh, you're right. You know what I think the readers... <laughs> 
the readers, and because of, because sports yeah. in America is akin to religion, you cut the sporting coverage and the readership will uh, cancel their subscriptions. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't do that with the book sections, I don't think. Well, they're under the gun anyway. They're losing subscriptions anyway to online vehicles, and, and they're losing advertisers. But classified advertising is yeah. all but dead. So Craigslist and others of yeah. Yeah, and these are realistic changes. We have to accept them. But but you know, sort of the history of this in the last ten to fifteen years has been dramatic, and I think it will continue to be dramatic. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen with the book industry because we're in the middle of these changes. You, know? yeah. you still produce a hard copy. So most of your revenue then, as you say, is through grants and foundation uh, money and Yeah, we do get some advertising, but, but it's by and large donated income that keeps us going. So and the person that's responsible for going out and getting getting that funding is probably pretty important to you, then, that, that position, is it? We have a board of directors that okay. basically steers that process. We're relatively small. In some larger nonprofits, there actually is a exactly. hired position. Yeah, yeah. To you don't need huge amounts of money to thrive. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, we're a little bit on a shoestring, but we're certainly fulfilling our mission and putting out the publication. And uh, and we do have a very active website with a lot of material there as well. We're certainly not luddites. We're not necessarily nostalgic for the way things were. But we want to see the values continue. So even if there are new platforms, you know, I mean, I think digital publishing is exciting. There's lots to be gained there. We want to see the same values communicated, kind of values of aesthetically exciting work, culturally relevant work. Aesthetically exciting reviewing of the works or the choice of the works that you would choose to review? I don't think I understand the question. Uh, you said that one of your values is seeking out uh, and what? Identifying, paying attention to works that have significant aesthetic value? Exactly. Yeah. That would be part of it. I guess the other part would be striving to review these works in ways that are creative and... Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's an interesting question also. No, but I mostly mean the former, that, that we're identifying it and, and reminding people that, you know, reading, while intensely pleasurable, you know, is the vehicle of, of language. You know, we, and, and of, of, that's our existence, our civilization. So uh, it's important to pay attention to it in all its forms. Uh, and some of those forms are highly artistic. Talked about graphic novels earlier. We also review a lot of poetry, which is unheard of in most book reviews, and certainly in newspaper sections that simply don't have the readership for. But we just treat it as an equal part of uh, uh, the book world because you know it may not command the kind of dollars, but culturally and aesthetically, it's it's at the core of our civilization, reflecting who we are and how we're changing. You're right. I mean, even with the more uh, established and honored book review publications uh, like the TLS and the New York Review of Books. And they'll pay attention to poetry, but it, it will be big established names that they'll primarily review. Yeah, and whether in poetry or fiction or even nonfiction, we will have a lot of debut authors. You know, it's, it's important to look at yep. what the emerging writers are doing. Um, at the same time, we want to acknowledge the masters as well and just try to bridge a lot of the gaps. I mean, our feeling is things have become too specialized, and people tend to only look at what their field is, what they think their interest is. But I think, actually, you know, why wouldn't a person who's interested in poetry also be interested in politics? Why wouldn't a person who's interested in politics want to know about uh, graphic novels from Europe discussing 
political situations or and on and on you know no matter what your interest is you always can benefit by being exposed to something else yeah. you know and so that's what our magazine is it's just sort of a collection of of these disparate things that what, what kind of breakdown are we looking at is it with between fiction and non-fiction for example it's 50 50 uh, or well i mean probably it's slightly weighted toward you know probably fiction and poetry command 60 percent or so and uh, and then non-fiction the rest but and it can change issue to issue what we really think is it's all literature so it doesn't it doesn't quite matter what the end breakdown is but what we're looking for is is that category of what's going to make you think what what kind of writing is destined to last and, and have an effect on people who read it so it's less important to me whether uh, what genre that happens to belong to and especially with so there's very much sorry there's very much a judgment that takes place here you are specifically trying to identify works that you think have merit yeah what, what criteria would you use well it ranges you know because I think I mean sometimes you do want to say this is vital this this is a great new voice uh, at other times you pay more attention to the topic maybe the writing isn't as dynamic as it could be but the topic is of interest it's it fairly wide ranging and by by no means does every single thing in there we think is great literature you know but the thing is to try to make an attempt to ferret out what's actually going on in the culture um, and so sometimes you, you won't necessarily succeed but it's that ambition to to look beyond what might be sent to you in the mail then to target various smaller presses that tend to publish authors that you find are worthy of your coverage definitely not but thanks for asking what did, yeah. you, what did you order there, by the way, that oh, drink? It's, well, they call it an Arnold Palmer, but it's a mixture of iced tea and lemonade. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say there's a bit of luck to it. And, and I like having luck as a, as a co-editor, if you will. You know, as a non-profit, we also feel it's important not only to honor emerging creative writers, but emerging criti- critical writers as well. So we have a submission policy and often college students or graduate students can try their hand at penning a review and go through an editorial process with us and we have every everyone from that sort of group to uh deemed retired writers you know who are still actively engaged in their discipline and thinking about the work of their fellows and you know there's a real range of voices there and, and it's important to have that you're giving voice to first of all to the publications that may not normally receive much attention and also trying to nurture new uh, talents in the critical sphere exactly and then the third thing that i would add to that is trying to nurture an audience for this work trying to demystify it a little bit to take it out of the academy a little bit and to tell people it's fun to read it's good to read challenging work you don't need to be afraid of it uh, there are contexts for it, and if you dip in, for instance, in this, you know, we have a piece on uh, Roberto Bolaño's new novel, it's very large, and that might intimidate some people, but you know, we feel it's uh, it's important. We were among even the though first, even uh, though it's getting a huge, huge amount of coverage. Right. Although, I, I, although I, I should say that we were one of the first reviews to cover him uh, back in 2001 or whenever it was okay. when his first translation appeared in the U.S. I believe it was a book called By Night in Chile, but um, I can't re- quite remember the title, but it was the first English translation, and nobody had heard of him yet. And, you know, we thought, wow, this is this is intriguing, yeah. yeah. You know, and, th- and that's it. I mean, we certainly couldn't have predicted that 
there'd be a there'd be this. Uh, but we're thrilled, you know, we're thrilled that I mean, we think he's a very important writer, and it's great that people are reading, and it's great that now that you know that there there is a lot of mainstream attention uh, to his work. So that's that's what you want. Again, you sort of you, it's not meant to be a private party, <laughs> you know, it's meant to educate that audience a little bit, you know, to to just make them realize that we review a lot of work in translation. Same reason, just to say there's no reason to be afraid of it. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's a good way to look yeah. beyond the... Americans are frequently criticized for not looking beyond their own borders. Mm-hmm. So who's uh, who's the next Roberto Bolano then? Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> well uh, no one jumps to mind immediately, though. I, I just sort of don't quite construct it that way. I mean, there are certainly people that I'm interested in watching. You know, for example... We have a review here of a fellow, I think he might even be a Canadian writer, David Odihambo, the Reverend's Apprentice. Uh, I've never heard of him. I, I had never heard of him either, but this book came in the mail. I thought it looked fascinating. I found a reviewer for it. The reviewer agreed it was quite fascinating. And so to us, we're, we sort of think, well, that's a writer with some promise. And I can't, t- I can't even tell you if he's written a second book or if he's going to. But I can tell you that we thought highly enough of this book out of dozens of others that we pursued uh, some action on it. So and, and you devoted a full page to it, whereas mm-hmm. it seems like more of the reviews are about a half page, right? Yeah, well, we think it's important to get a lot in there, and we try to keep people to to be as concise as possible, because this goes back to what you were saying of, about whether the review itself should be aesthetically challenging. We don't think so. There are times when that's a good approach, but in general, it should be clear, it should be relatively jargon-free. You don't need thousands and thousands of words to to really describe the essence of, of something. How judgmental should the review be? Do you want it to, to, to be very straightforward about you should read this book or you should you should avoid this book? No, I'm not so interested in, in the sort of thumbs-up or thumbs-down criticism. I guess it, de- it depends on the, re- the audience, doesn't it? I mean, the, uh, the, someone who reads the book review section in the newspaper may well be looking for that kind of advice, whereas uh, someone who has an yeah. innate interest and joy in reading reviews may not be looking for that. Although I must say that I find opinionated critics the most entertaining. Yeah, but there's a difference between entertaining and... Highly volatile opinions get the most attention, but I don't know that they're like Peck, Dale Peck. Exactly, yeah. But I don't know that ultimately they're the most lasting statements about a work. It seems to me those fires generally can burn out quickly. And what I, I think what I'm really looking for, even in a relatively short review, is a descriptive enough quality that, let's say, you're interested in in, in fiction and you know developing a broader palette of fiction, you're going to read about a lot of books here from different publishers. I mean, most people, you know, there's three books on this spread. Yeah. Most people, you know, if you've heard of one or maybe, most people would never have heard of all three. Um, and some wouldn't have heard of any of the three. Yeah. There's something for you to discover. And what I want the review to do is be able to communicate to you, is this the kind of thing I could see giving it world, you know? And that, you're really only going to be able to get that through a level of description. Writer critics, can I get you to name a few names? Hmm. Or maybe not. Uh, I mean, if they yeah. don't come to mind, then, okay. uh, then you yeah, know. I mean, I think they don't come to mind partly because I have a poor memory, probably. Yeah. But, but I think more because, in a way, I think good reviews almost efface themselves in that they stay true to their subject matter rather than being 
products in and of themselves. Again, I think that's kind of a gift. I know that when I write a piece that I'm, that I'm not doing it to aggrandize my point of view. I'm trying to honor the work in front of me and have it have my commentary be part of its life rather than the other way around. You know, ultimately a review is about sharing one's knowledge and one's passion. And I think all sorts of people are able to do that and they should do it and we're thrilled when they want to do it with us. So. Any reviewers from any age, any era that are your heroes? Hmm. Boy, I've never been asked that. Uh, I, you know, I come from a, uh, a background of um, writing poetry and... Hey. You didn't cut it though. Do you want to cut? <laughs> well, it could it could it's cause okay. some problems here. <laughs> All right. Uh, I come from a background of uh, writing poetry and literary criticism, and uh, um, um, there you go. Is that you want know, the ice cream? Do that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Enjoy. And I think that what I valued was the sense that historically writers have always been involved in providing commentary. I think what I'm trying to say is I don't, even though Rain Taxi is a bit of a hybrid between something kind of a mainstream journalism and the more rarefied literary magazine style, I come from the literary magazine side and not the journalism side. And so what I value is the sense that uh, working writers, uh, working craftspeople are engaged in the in the aesthetic issues of their time. I'm less interested in a professional critic being paid to evaluate something. So the kind of reviews that I've admired have tended to be ones by practicing writers and poets themselves. Like you Shelley, know. Virginia Woolf. Exactly. And Woolf is an interesting example because she also put her money where her mouth was as a publisher mm -hmm. publishing through uh, the Hogarth Press and so forth. So so that's what I like. There's a vision of publishing there. And there are dozens of examples like that of presses that I think are really vital uh, and that I want to see succeed and that I want to see find readers. I also think that uh, many of these books, uh, again, they sort of have uh, the stigma of small press as if it's um, not good enough for a big yeah. press or yeah. if it's too intellectual or... What, but all of these things are prejudices. They're simply not true. And there are many, many books on it. You know, this novel, for example... Uh, the Reverend's you know, Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, this may, you know... Um, you know, if it sells a 1,000 or 2,000 copies, you know, we may think, well, it's really... I mean, we're not saying it should be a bestseller, but we are saying it could probably sell 10,000 copies. So what you admire in a yeah. small press, or any press, or any publisher is that they're not just driven by the need to make money. Absolutely. I mean, and that, it seems to me that Absolutely. that's the crucial point, is yeah. a lot of these small uh, presses yeah. aren't using yeah. profit as the primary motive for Absolutely. producing what they yeah. produce. No, they're, they're privileging the artistic merit over the commercial yeah. viability. Uh, I mean, I think that's a noble enterprise, and, and, and I think it's being done very well by many people. Now, I, mean, I think things have evolved over, you know, the history of publishing, and it's, it's almost a misnomer to call all this work small press, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even here in, in the Twin Cities, you know, we have three wonderful, uh, well-established uh, small presses, Grey Wolf Press, Coffeehouse Press, and Milkweed Editions, 
all of them in their 30s. I wouldn't even really call these small presses no. there, and yet they come from a background of of small presses, but they and they still have you know fiercely independent, fiercely artistic, visionary ideals. But you know they're they're large enough that they have a, the you know the kind of presence and in some ways the kind of clout that many people might associate with more commercial publishing. So you know it's a spectrum, like like just as. The, the reviews are on a spectrum. It's I, I don't think there's a right way and a wrong way. I don't think it's a black and white situation. And I think that the more people get exposed to this variety of books, the way we're doing in this in our magazine, I think the more understanding they will be that that variety is in itself a strength. Just finally, uh, what about some of the young? You've identified uh, a few of the smaller presses that uh, exemplify what what you admire. What about some of the reviewers? Do you have... Again, I'm putting you on the spot here. You, you know, you don't want to necessarily plug some and not others, but any reviewers that really strike your fancy? Well, sure, but, I mean, we've had nearly a thousand different writers pass through our pages um, okay. or use our pages as a forum, and, and again, I think that's wonderful. And it's been everybody from David Foster Wallace, who I write about in this issue, yes. to tell the story of his relationship with us. Was this early on in his career? or uh, uh, Well, it, it was uh, right before he won the uh, Genius Grant. So, uh, because uh, of the piece he wrote in Rain <laughs> I won't go that far. No. But, but everyone from you know well-known writers like that to people who are publishing their first serious piece with us. And, but, you know, yeah, it's a thrill to have that, that range of people. But, yeah, in this issue, um, we have a, a lovely piece by Stephen Burt, uh, who's a, a, a Harvard professor, a well-known poetry critic, uh, often writes about graphic novels for us and, in, in a wonderful way, and it's, a, it's terrific when that happens. Brian Evanson, who is a writer that we championed very early on, critically acclaimed, will often uh, stop in and, and write a review for us. So it's great to have people like that stay engaged. I think it was W.H. Alden said, you know, if you don't like the book, well, then, then he'd much rather not review it. Yeah, and, and overwhelmingly, most of our writers feel that way. I think it is important if you're writing about something to gain some pleasure out of it. Although, on the other hand, just from a, from a reader's perspective, a negative review can be wonderfully uh, entertaining. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but but as you say, but it, I would, there, yeah. be, there should be more of a reason than just to make a reader uh, sort of smirk and smile at how clever you are. Exactly, exactly. We, we all like a little... Uh, Mixing it up, yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, ultimately the service that we're trying to provide is to things that are under-recognized and things that need to have a better chance at exposure. But yeah, we're not pulling any punches either. There, There is a mix. And I think often, too, the so-called mixed review is is another staple. Balanced. And, yes. Yeah. And, th- and that's because when you're describing, if you're describing accurately, you are going to see the good and the bad in something. Or in many cases, especially with early work by writers, uh, the ambition. What are they trying to do? They might not be succeeding, but is what they're trying to do interesting? Well, in uh, fact, so you know, you look at, uh, I, I always bring this example up, but it, it, Ian McEwan's, uh, you know, acknowledged great writer, yeah. and yet Amsterdam, which won the Booker, was clearly not terribly an ambitious. I mean, it was well executed, beautifully sort of arced, and yet not particularly ambitious, and as a result, really disappointing, I found. Potentially 
more uh, appealing to mainstream readers? I mean, I don't know, or or it's certainly <laughs> polished, but but you're right. It, it, a lot of it depends on expectations too. I guess. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think it is very tough to review established writers of, of that ilk because we bring all our baggage with us. We bring the fact that we've read ten of their other books, and it's hard to see with fresh eyes. It's hard not to compare it to your favorites. Um, uh, we often, I think, we're all guilty of this. We want writers to continue to deliver the same pleasure that we got out of that book ten years ago. But writers move on like everyone else, and why should they write the same book again? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so I often prefer to see writers try something new and, and perhaps fail, mm-hmm. and, and, and just, acknowledge that. Yeah. 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 Than just copy themselves. Evolve so, then. Yeah. yeah. And I think there can be a healthy argument. I mean, you know, whether it's in poetry or prose, there, there can be a discussion about the later work of, of an established writer and whether it measures up to the early work. People will have different opinions for different reasons. And I think that discussion can be quite healthy. I, again, I find it better to keep it relatively on an even keel rather than so-and-so has done it again or, you know, so-and-so has failed us. I mean, it seems to me like, why have the bombast? Let's really look at what is the writing doing and let the readers go where they will. Uh, Again, make an argument and and back it up. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. In terms of looking for the best writing about books, do you continue to go to mainstream outlets? What do you think? Oh, uh, We haven't thought yet. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No worries. Uh, do you want? Did you want to? Yeah, sure. Might as well. What, what do you? Uh, we can uh, share one. On if she uh, can split it up. Yeah. What do you like? I like everything, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I could actually go for uh, a, a gelato. I think either that or do you? Do you have anything here? Like that first one? Uh, that looks pretty awesome as well. Yeah. Well, that would be one to share. Okay, let's that's, share that. That's, uh, let's do that. That was monstrous for one person. Yeah, I, I just what I'm, what I'm getting at is, first of all, there's a debate as to where the where the best writing now resides. Is it, you know, of course, you can find it everywhere. Perhaps you could tell us where you go to read the the best, what you think are the best book reviews, both on and offline. Well, you know, it's a little different. You you read with a different perspective when you're a review editor yourself. You know, you know, in general, I don't read that many mainstream reviews because I'm curating my own selection let's say reading in this field where do you where do you go as a starting point you must read a certain number of blogs a certain number of publications to kind of stay current or to stay informed okay but there's a difference between information and an opinion aesthetically viable Uh, so let me give you both answers I mean for information I do read trade publications like Publishers Weekly, but really, again, I'm getting catalogs in the mail, you know, six to nine months before books come out, and I scrutinize all those catalogs very carefully. That's really, you know, from the point of view of information, we sort of have an industry, an insider's view of, of, of the thing that already starts to coalesce ideas in my mind. As far as commentary, you know, yeah. discussion, discourse, criticism, that's a different animal, and I don't read as much as I used to, but ones I enjoy reading that I would consider our peers are publications like Book Forum. I think the Boston Review is quite excellent. And I think, you know, they share with us a willingness to look beyond the bestseller list, uh, an interest in the artistic qualities of writing. 
and those are the, th- the kind of things I value. I don't particularly value, you know, what I see in the New York Times, for example, is sort of willful savaging of so-and-so's book by someone who has the complete opposite, is that, you know, like you yeah. can predict the outcome. Like uh, Kern on Wood, for example. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Or their, their other hallmark is, as you, I think you were about to say, a 99% coverage of corporate publishing with, you know, the occasional other things slipped in, you know, in brief, usually. I don't want that to go away, but what I wanted to do is create uh, an alternative or an addendum to that kind of thing, just to show people, people who want to know, that there's a lot more out there than just than just that. We're going to share this. The Dino? Yeah. Good one. Do you want any coffee? Latte, cappuccino, anything? You know, I'm going to go with an espresso. Sure. Please. Thank you. So we've got a couple of publications then that you've, you've named. What about blogs? Are there uh, any blogs that you follow? No, I don't. Uh, to be honest, I'm at the computer too many hours as, as it is doing the work of creating this, and um, I don't really have time to look at blogs. I also generally, I like that they're there. I like that it creates a more, creates a real democracy of voices, and I like that, you know, I like the idea of instantaneous response. But I don't necessarily like it in practice. Um, I mean, I think what I value about any kind of writing, uh, whether it's reviewing or anything else, is I want a sense that this was labored over, considered. Uh, considered. I, I want to know that it was edited and wrought. Those are just things that I value about any kind of artwork. And while there's a pleasure in sort of the fresh approach or the first thought or whatnot, there's certainly very viable things about that. Uh, for me, those aren't the lasting ones. 